Hi, I'm Eddie Albron. And I'm Ada Yee. And welcome to an episode of Brains and Bourbon, a show about cocktails and neuroscience brought to you by Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Each week, we invite a a neuroscientist to discuss the process and motivation behind their science and to share their favorite cocktail with us. This week, our guest is Carla Schatz, a professor of biology and neurobiology here at Stanford. Thank you for joining us today, Professor Schatz. Oh, yes, you're very welcome. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for making the time. So we have here the makings of your favorite cocktail. So can you tell us what this cocktail is and how you make it? Sure. Well, first of all, I I like, you know, the name brains and bourbon, but I think for today we have to call it Campari and Cortex. (laughs) (laughs) That's very good. (laughs) And, you know, Campari is sort of a a little bit of an astringent. It's an aperitif. Okay. Uh, So you would have it before dinner. It's very red, which I think is appropriate for Stanford. (laughs) Um, and you can drink it neat. Well, first of all, it's very Italian, mm-hmm. which which I happen to love. Mm-hmm. And you can drink it either neat without anything, just a little bit of Campari. Mm-hmm. Or you can drink it with Campari and soda, Pellegrino. Mm-hmm. Or you can put a little ice in it. Okay. And, and you can also, you know, there's so many ways to do it. But yeah. anyhow. Yeah. And it's very festive because of yeah. its color. Yeah. Or you might think you're, you're drinking something and it will kill you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So why don't you go ahead and make yourself a drink and okay um, uh, I'll do that yeah and maybe while you're doing that can you tell us uh, when was the first time you had this drink Ooh, good question we should I probably had this drink for the first time when I first went to Italy which was when I had a Marshall scholarship to oh, spend okay. two years in studying physiology in London right, right after I graduated from college mm-hmm. and oh. I really don't want to tell you how long ago it was <laughs> <laughs> it was a really long time ago <laughs> yeah we probably will be talking a little bit about uh, when you went there and, and you just really liked the taste or what made you so you were just traveling around Europe in that time well it was wonderful I mean I had this uh, fellowship, and I met other people who had the fellowship. You know, we were supposed to bond and everything yeah. before we all went off to our different universities. I so see. several of us on vacations, uh-huh. which were taken in very serious ways in England in uh-huh. those days, you know, so over Christmas or uh-huh. over, you know, Easter or whatever, mm-hmm. we had no money. So, mm-hmm. you know, for 50 cents a day, basically, mm-hmm. we would travel mm-hmm. from... England, mm-hmm. uh, in the cheapest way possible to the mm-hmm. continent, mm-hmm. hitchhike around mm-hmm. usually, and, mm-hmm. and and then try to economize and, yeah. and stay places. So yeah. the, one of the first places we went was Siena, Italy. I oh, see, wow. I see. That's beautiful. Is that a, is that on the sea? No, no, that is not on the sea. It's in <laughs> Tuscany. No you have to go. You have to go. I have to go. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Well, cheers. Yeah. Thank you yeah, so much. Yeah, right. Cheers, everybody. Try this. And this yeah. is Eddie and I. Well, it's my first time. Eddie yep. never had this. Never. Yeah, good luck, guys. Yeah. I think it's weird. <laughs> mm. Oh, I see. There's this uh, interesting aftertaste. It's like very hoppy. It's like yeah. it's like, a, like an ale or something. Yeah, almost. but it's sort of bitter too, right? Yeah, you have this sort of bitter taste. Bitter. Yeah. How are you doing, Eddie? Is it, it to okay? Be sweet. Yeah. <laughs> that red it, color is very misleading. It looks very sweet. Yeah. yeah. I'm oh, sure it's very high carbo, mm-hmm. <laughs> carb content, right? Sugar <laughs> content. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. Wow. Well, thank very you. Good, yeah. well, you're welcome. Yeah, go Stanford. Did we did we win our last game? I think right. we lost it, or we won it. Hmm? We lost. We it lost. was a bad thing. <laughs> I was I was um, I was in Seattle doing something for Stanford uh-huh. that weekend. Yeah. And they had the they had the game on TV, and oh, it was against. Man. Uh, yeah. Actually, I think it was Oregon. Oregon, Oregon Ducks. Ducks. Yeah. yeah, we don't. Yeah, and it was a really bad one. <laughs> <laughs> it was a really bad one. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, dear. Right. Let's not go there. All right. <laughs> yeah. Go card. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so moving on. So why don't we just start with Eddie? Do you want to go ahead and? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So we have 
have a few questions for you here, uh, Professor Schatz. So you're famous for your work studying neural development. And before we talk about your science, can you tell us a little bit about your neural, your own neural development? <laughs> Where did you grow up? You know, what was your family like? If you could just tell us a yeah, little bit. Yeah, sure. My neural development actually started in California. Mm. I was conceived in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> we really started early. Way back to the beginning. We study, we study fetal development. Right, so, right. Mean, you to need me, to know. That's, that's kind a, that's of important. Right. And, but then I was born in, in New York, and I grew up. I, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, when I was really mm-hmm. a little kid, and then we moved to Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And so I went to junior high and high school mm-hmm. in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Were, were your parents yeah. were from California? Yeah, no, there, so my or? parents, but they had, my parents are both New Yorkers. They okay. both mm-hmm. were born in, in Brooklyn uh-huh. and grew up in nice. Brooklyn yeah. and went to New York schools. And then, mm-hmm. but during the war, well, so my dad was... A, he's not with us anymore. Yeah. Neither are. Mm-hmm. But my dad was a, a mathematician and an aeronautical engineer. Wow. And oh. uh, my mother was an artist okay. uh, and actually had her master's of fine arts. Oh, wow. And was very, really good. Yeah. <laughs> and during the war, they they were in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and he was designing, you know, sonar and radar mm-hmm. and things oh, like wow. that. Mm-hmm. So they, they met a lot of friends in mm-hmm. California. So they had many, many friends in California. Mm-hmm. I don't know quite why. I think he was out there again on mm-hmm. a job after after mm-hmm. the war. Mm-hmm. And we lived where he worked. So mm-hmm. he worked for Pratt & Whitney mm-hmm. making, you know, jet engines. And wow. they w- they worked on some of the first missile defense systems wow. uh, for the country years wow. ago. And his, but the most wonderful thing he did was to build the inertial guidance system okay. for the Apollo 12 lunar wow. module. No this was the one yeah. where the main system failed mm-hmm. and it was his team that built the backup system that mm-hmm. got the astronauts back mm-hmm. to wow. the you know space capsule afterwards. It was really kind of cool. So saved, saved really people's cool. lives. Yeah, <laughs> saved people's lives. But as you can tell too, you know, like a lot mm-hmm. of it was secret, and I mean, mm-hmm. we didn't know all that mm-hmm. much. Uh, mm-hmm. My brother, who's younger than me, yeah. was going on, but we knew he loved what he was doing, mm-hmm. and uh, he was a scientist. Yeah, you know, he encouraged us to do whatever we liked, mm-hmm. and I, there was no issue with me uh, mm-hmm. being just as interested in science as mm-hmm. I was in art. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. was wonderful. I mean, that was mm-hmm. a big influence that he had on yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, you can did, imagine. Did he ever tinker with you guys? Did you ever, I mean, like, as in, like, do My things together? My dad tinkering? Yeah, <laughs> tinkering. I don't know. Somehow I imagine, yeah, like, an engineer. I know. I know. I think he, the last thing he wanted to do when he came home yeah. was to have any more things <laughs> to tinker with or go wrong or whatever. My, my mother and father, they, they actually used to have, you know, friendly arguments about, yeah. you know, he would never fix anything at home, but there he was designing these, you know, fail-safe systems to work. Right, right. But the dishwasher bikes, no, yeah. no part right. of it. Exactly, exactly. I see. And, and what were you like as a kid yourself? Like, so you were interested in many different things, art and, and science, or did you, did you, were you studious? Were you a troublemaker? Were you, what were you like? Aha, <laughs> uh-huh. ask my parents. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I was a pretty horrible older sister because <laughs> I was like Mrs. Perf- Miss Perfect. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was really good at school. I loved I loved um, the academics, and, mm-hmm. and I was good. Mm-hmm. So was my brother. But mm-hmm. being the younger brother, I think, yeah. well, I know because we've talked about it a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> um, was not necessarily the most most fun thing in the world right. for him yeah. at that time. <laughs> but we we did a lot of stuff as a family mm-hmm. and. 
I wasn't really, I think because I was very nerdy mm-hmm. and I, I, I liked school, mm-hmm. but I did a lot of other things outside of school. Mm-hmm. I, I was a very serious downhill skier oh, wow. and I danced ballet all the way through grad school, actually. Wow. And a lot of things I did with my family and yeah. their their friends and kids my age, but, you know, not through school, more through the families. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I didn't have a lot of friends at school yeah, at all. Yeah, sure. And the one thing I have to say that my parents told me, which was really one of the best and worst pieces of advice that I ever got, <laughs> was don't worry about what other people think of you. Hmm. Okay. You know, and that was a really great piece of advice uh-huh. right. because it— uh, you know, it just lets you be yourself mm-hmm. and do the things you think are important. Yeah. But then it also can isolate you, especially, I think, in high school, you know, I where yeah. you're not doing what everybody <laughs> yeah. else is doing. Right. You, know, you are definitely... You're not a, cool. A, you're not right. cool. <laughs> exactly. right. I yeah. see. Well, did it serve you well in college? So, so you know, obviously you were a very accomplished student and you had lots of hobbies. So you went on to, I guess it was Radcliffe College yeah. at that yeah. time? Yeah, which is now, nobody knows what that is anymore. It's Harvard, <laughs> Harvard now. Yeah, it's Harvard now. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so you went on there. And so what was it like for you going to Harvard? Did you really love it? Did this advice serve you well there? Yeah. It, well, you know, I think what was good there is that I actually met people who were like me mm-hmm. uh, for the first time. And mm-hmm. that was really wonderful. I mean, so, you know, other sort of people who did, hadn't quite fit in mm-hmm. in, in high school and mm-hmm. they were... You know, because they were, everybody loved learning. Mm-hmm. And so it was really great to meet some of these people. But also, mm-hmm. the other thing is, it turned out that because I did dance mm-hmm. and I did ski, I joined the ski team, mm-hmm. I met so many wonderful people. And now, even right now, you know, today, some of my really closest friends I met either because we raced against each other in college <laughs> yeah. or we raced together in college. Wow. Or, you know, I met them skiing. We had a ski house, which was really fun. We used yeah. to Go up there on the weekends, wow. and, you know, cook. I was a, I, we would cook for like you know thirty people. I mean, we would cram into the house <laughs> right. and cook. It was really, it was really lovely. So there, yeah. the things that I did, you know, I think my parents gave me ways. Mm-hmm that I could really have mm-hmm. a wonderful social life mm-hmm. as well as a pretty serious mm-hmm. intellectual life. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. You- so, so, Carla, how do you go from, you know, ballet and uh, skiing to, you know, the scientist that you are? Where was the transition? Well, you know, well, I think it happened. it happened really at the end of college because what happened is I really, in college, I really loved art and science. And I took a, probably almost as many studio classes and design classes at, at Harvard as I did. Mm. I majored in chemistry. Mm-hmm. So I took a lot of chem. Mm-hmm. And even then, we had to do a senior thesis for honors. Mm-hmm. And I met with my senior advisor in the beginning of senior year, and I, you know, I said, uh, you know, I just don't know if I really want to do a, a, a honor thesis in chemistry. Mm-hmm. And this guy was fantastic. Yeah. And instead of saying, oh, I'm really annoyed at that, because he was a chemist, <laughs> yeah. he said, well, you know, what do you like? And he listened to me, and I told yeah. him that, you know, I had this love of the arts, and I loved the sciences, mm-hmm. and I had just taken two really important classes. Yeah. I took a class on on photopigments, because George Wald mm. had, okay. not that long ago, won the Nobel Prize mm. okay. for his discovery of rhodopsin and, uh-huh. and studying the different chemical forms uh-huh. of rhodopsin. Uh-huh. And I had also just taken a class in art and visual perception by a mm-hmm. really famous uh, psychologist mm-hmm. who was, you know, trying to study what's going on in your brain when you perceive things in the world. And he was using visual illusions to mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. And this guy listened and he said, 
Well, you know, there are these two young professors over at the medical school, uh-huh. David Hubel <laughs> and Torsten Weasel. And upstarts. Right? I mean, and this was way before they yeah. the one they're known mm-hmm. right, right. And why don't you just go over and see if you could do your senior thesis in their lab. Wow. And I did. I went over. <laughs> and when I, when I say over, you know, so yeah. Harvard College is on one side of the river, mm-hmm. and then the medical school's on the other side. And yeah. So it's actually sort of a track. Anyhow, yeah. I went over. <laughs> yeah. And I show up. And it was so unusual. I was the first undergrad <laughs> to actually, you know, kind of a little pave that yeah. way. Yeah. Uh, and, and they thought they were very intrigued. And yeah. the other reason they were intrigued is, in addition to teaching med students, yeah. that year they had decided uh-huh. to teach an undergraduate course right. in neuroscience at Harvard College. Uh-huh. Mm. And they were. I went in the fall to see them. Mm-hmm. They were going to teach in the spring. So mm-hmm. little known to me, but I found out in a painful way is they used me as their guinea pig. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, how do undergrads think? They did. And I had to do all the problem sets. It was a nightmare right now. You know, they made me do sort of like really? test, you know, test bed everything before really? they actually no tried it wow. out on them. But and that was that was the beginning. It was just really unbelievable. I was so lucky, right? And nobody knew yet, right, that they were going to get a Nobel Prize. (laughs) Of course, yeah, that's amazing. It's I think it's number one amazing that your chemistry or teacher or uh, advisor, I guess, realized that this was this something you could do. Mm -hmm. And also, so when you were in that lab, were you you just taking these little tests, or did you get to do experiments in the lab? What did they have you do? Well, what they had me do. So that year, they had me. I had to sort of write. A kind of a, a research paper, right. but and so what I did is they I was allowed to just sit and watch them, so they didn't mm-hmm. actually let me do anything, mm-hmm. uh, really, with my hands. Yeah. Although it turns out that I'm very good at watching and then later doing. Yeah. I've, I've learned that now. Yeah. And so, but, and then the most important thing I did, I can't believe, mm-hmm. David Hubel, every week, so I had a meeting with him every week, mm-hmm. and every week I had to read a paper. Yeah. And I had to write a one-paragraph summary of the paper. Right. And mm-hmm. bring it in and discuss it with him. Yeah. And then he would edit the paper, which was horrible. Of course, <laughs> you know. um, because yeah. he writes so beautifully. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. so I we talked about the paper. I learned all kinds of stuff. And then yeah. he edited it. I learned how yeah. to write. Yeah. It was an amazing wow. thing to incredible. have yeah, that's happen. That's very amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so both uh, Eddie and I are actually TAs for Sue McConnell, who's your former mm-hmm. postdoc right yep. now. Yep. And, uh, and and teaching undergrads is quite an experience. And to imagine, like, the challenge of, like, every week you you, you as an undergrad going in and yeah. trying to write these papers. But that must have been an amazing experience. Yeah. I mean, I think it was just lucky, too. I was the first. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so it was, I was sort of novel. They were full of energy, you know, and, and they had the time to do it, you yeah. know. So yeah. I was very lucky. That's yeah. really great. So actually, David Hubel, unfortunately, just uh, passed away, not, you know, before accomplishing yeah. quite a bit. And so many, you know, pieces came out. You yourself wrote a piece about him. And I heard he was he was really a man who was always in the lab. And you, you yourself wrote about him, like, being in the lab and playing the flute. Can you tell us, like, what they were like as mentors and who they were as people, really? Well, they were amazing people. They were yeah. both wonderful Hubel. Well, Weasel is still with us. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> and, true. And he's that's amazing, true. still mm-hmm. vital, amazing person. Mm-hmm. They're very real human beings. Mm-hmm kind. They were great mentors. Mm-hmm. They were there all the time. So, yeah. I mean, but hands off. So, mm-hmm. I mean, when I, you know, the story for me is that what happened is I, so I went, I did my senior thesis in the lab mm-hmm. and then I got this Marshall scholarship and I went to spend two years in England right. and I learned physiology. I actually learned animal physiology. I didn't know anything. I knew oh, yeah. chemistry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I knew math. Uh-huh. You know, I, I mean, I knew physics. I was, right. 
I didn't know anything about living things, so I, it was yeah. a wonderful two years. Yeah. And then I came, I, I was thinking, okay, what? I got to go to grad school. I mm-hmm. wanted to go to grad school, yeah. and I knew it. Yeah. The moment that I walked into Hubel and Weasel Lab and I saw yeah. what they were doing, and yeah. it was so exciting. Yeah. And they were really exploring brain circuits for vision, and you could watch the nerve cells. I mean, I, yeah. I sat there and watched these experiments <laughs> yeah. where the nerve cells were responding to oriented bars of light, yeah. and mm-hmm. it was amazing. So maybe we should slow down right yeah. here for our audience, because not everybody um, who's listening to this might be a neuroscientist. So can you tell us what exactly were Hubel and Weasel doing when you were an undergrad? What kind mm-hmm. of things were they looking at? Were they describing anatomy? Were they recording from, you know, cat? Uh, visual cortex? Right. So so what they were doing is people had understood a fair amount already about how the retina works. Mm-hmm. So how when light comes into your eye, uh, the rods and cones convert it to a neural signal. Mm-hmm. People knew that. Mm-hmm. But they really didn't know anything about the computations that were going on beyond the retina. Mm-hmm. And fundamentally what Hubel and Weasel were doing mm-hmm. is they were discovering and really elucidating the neural circuits mm-hmm. that were were doing the first sets of computations for visual perception. Mm-hmm. Uh, first in the relay station called the lateral geniculate nucleus, and then at the next stage in the primary visual cortex. Mm-hmm. And they were doing it two ways. But, you know, in those days, primarily the way people were doing things mm-hmm. is they were recording the, the minute electrical signals mm-hmm. generated by nerve cells when they communicate with each mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm. So they were recording from, uh, you know, the cat visual cortex, basically, mm-hmm. one nerve cell at a time, which today we would consider quite archaic. Mm-hmm. But it turned out mm-hmm. to be really powerful. Mm-hmm. And then they developed really powerful anatomical methods Mm -hmm. also to study those circuits. So Mm -hmm. that was actually a pretty big breakthrough. Some Mm of the uh, tracing techniques were Mm -hmm. just beginning to come online. Mm when they when they were working and they were so creative and they would jump on anything that looked like it was going to help them solve mm-hmm. a problem and i actually mm-hmm. learned a very important lesson from them mm-hmm. which is to choose a really big question mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then work on pieces of it mm-hmm. you know even your whole life mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. bring and then learn or bring to bear techniques that you need to answer the question as mm-hmm. they become available mm-hmm. or collaborate, which is what right. I love to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, the spirit of Stanford is really yeah. to do that. Yeah, it wasn't so. really there. They, they weren't mm-hmm. really into that. Mm-hmm. But they would they would bring techniques into the lab and mm-hmm. learn them and use them. Mm-hmm. So it was both anatomy and physiology. That's what I they see. did. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Okay. Um, right. Well, yeah, I mean, Hubel and Wiesel, obviously, you know, great great scientists, <laughs> pioneers of their time. Yeah. Um, but this interview is a little more about, you know, Carla Schatz, <laughs> the amazing scientist that you yeah. are, right? So um, so you came back to uh, work, do your graduate work with Hubel and Wiesel, and you started working on an aspect of the visual system called ocular do- dominance columns. So could you tell us a little bit, uh, you know, about what ocular dominance columns are and sort of what path you kind of went on as a scientist yourself? First of all, you know, we have two eyes. So how come we don't see double all the time? (laughs) Because we have two complete views of the visual world, one Mm -hmm. through each eye. Mm -hmm. So the job of the central brain wiring is to bring the two eyes together to make a seamless view of the world. Mm -hmm. And that starts to happen uh, first uh, in this lateral geniculate nucleus and Mm -hmm. then in the primary visual cortex. Mm -hmm. And ocular dominance columns are the neural circuitry that underlies the fundamental organization that allows the two eyes to talk to each other Mm -hmm. in a very systematic way. Mm -hmm. And when Hubel and Weasel, so I was in the lab when they uh, discovered 
the ocular dominance columns using an anatomical method mm-hmm. to look at all of them at once. Right. I see. So they were, they had found these columns because yeah. they were like you know Greek columns mm-hmm. uh, in the in the sense that if you uh, record from one nerve cell after another going. Uh, vertically down into the cortex, mm-hmm. all the nerve cells prefer, let's say, the right eye. Mm-hmm. That's a right eye column, and mm-hmm. then next door is a left eye maybe, column. Maybe there's to slow down again for the audience. So basically they're doing these recordings while the cats can see stimuli. So, so is that what you mean? So you're recording, and then maybe you can clarify that for a second. Yeah, they're recording how strongly the nerve cell responds mm-hmm. to stimulating the right eye or the left eye. Mm-hmm. And, the, and an animal is looking at a screen, I see. basically. Okay, okay. And, um, so, so go ahead. So then yeah. they discovered these columns. Yeah. So they discovered the columns. But but they could only, again, look at like one nerve cell at a time. Mm-hmm. And so then they there was a new technique that mm-hmm. was uh, developed, mm-hmm. sort of using a non-toxic tracer mm-hmm. to trace the connections from one eye to the mm-hmm. cortex. And then they could see mm-hmm. all the columns at once. It mm-hmm. was like awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. So when I, I was in the lab when they were doing this, mm-hmm. and I actually was at the time... I had to take grad courses, and I was yeah. taking a course on brain development, uh-huh. which uh, was sort of a, you know, kind of a strange mixture of, okay, human brain development yeah. and mouse brain development. I mean, yeah. not that much was known. Yeah. But I was thinking development. Yeah. And when I saw these columns, yeah. I thought, wow, how yeah. do they develop? Mm. Yeah. And that's that actually was the beginning of my interest right. in, uh-huh. in what I do now, which is, mm-hmm. you know, study how the brain develops. Mm-hmm. And there were two questions. It was a big mm-hmm. argument at the time, nature or nurture? Uh-huh. <laughs> so are the brain yeah. circuits, you know, are these beautiful ocular dominance columns? They seemed so precise. How mm-hmm. could they be left to chance? Mm-hmm. Right. But as we've all discovered, mm-hmm. it turns out experience is important mm-hmm. for tuning, fine-tuning them up. So, so it's nurture. both nature uh, and see, nurture. Right. And uh, then I got really interested in, uh, you know, how, what's, you know, unraveling the difference. And also, if it is nurture, if it is using using your visual system, mm-hmm. how does it work? I mean, mm-hmm. how does experience change connections in your brain? Mm-hmm. And how does it, you know, lead to new learning mm-hmm. for the visual system? It's mm-hmm. the two eyes are learning how to uh, actually interact with each other in the brain through these circuits that are being tuned up mm-hmm. by experience. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we've been working on in the lab ever since, right. is how does experience tune up neural circuits, mm-hmm. yeah. especially during early developmental critical periods, mm-hmm. which we really haven't talked about yet. But Yeah, sure. Back to the ocular dominance column. So the experiment you designed was it to close one eye, and then I've seen these pictures. Basically, those, do- those columns that you can visualize anatomically, they just completely change. Is that right? Yeah. So <clears throat> the, the question was really to try to understand why children who are born mm-hmm. with a congenital cataract mm-hmm. are permanently blind in that eye even mm-hmm. if the cataract is fixed mm-hmm. But if it's fixed too late. Mm-hmm. So we, you know perfectly well, if your grandmother gets a cataract, she's had normal vision her whole life. Right. You know, 60, 70 years, then yeah. she gets a cataract. And so she has this uh, opacity in the lens. Mm-hmm. And then she might have it for a number of years mm-hmm. and she can't see out of that eye. Mm-hmm. And then she goes to the ophthalmologist and mm-hmm. he puts in a new lens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, voila, she mm-hmm. can see. Mm-hmm. And no problem, yeah. right? But right. if a child is born with a congenital cataract and Mm -hmm. it isn't repaired Mm -hmm. within the first few years after birth, Mm -hmm. then the child either has diminished or no vision Mm -hmm. in the Mm -hmm. eye. Mm -hmm. That's weird. So Mm -hmm. what's different between grandma Mm -hmm. and, you know, the the child with the cataract? Mm -hmm. And 
It also shows that there's a critical period during which time mm-hmm. that the eyes have to see in order to have functional connections in mm-hmm. the brain. Mm-hmm. This is really important. It was mm-hmm. a huge concept at the mm-hmm. time, critical periods of development. Mm-hmm. We have them you know, for language learning. Mm-hmm. So Hubel and Weasel decided to try to understand that by looking in the brain and asking what's going on in the brain circuits. Mm-hmm. So they made an animal model mm-hmm. of childhood versus adult cataract. Mm-hmm. And basically, they just closed the lids of one eye, mm-hmm. either in a baby animal or an adult animal. Mm-hmm. And then they waited for a month or so, and then they traced the connections. Mm-hmm. And when they did the experiment in the adult animal, mm-hmm. the connections, even though the animal hadn't seen for a month or two, Mm-hmm. The connections were perfectly normal. Those mm-hmm. ocular dominance columns mm-hmm. were 50-50, right eye, left eye, perfectly normal. Right. But when they did the same experiment in the baby, right. what they discovered is if, let's say, the right eye was closed, mm-hmm. then the connections were all taken over by the left eye mm-hmm. with only like 10% left in the right eye, not enough to support vision. So they discovered that the reason for the loss of vision in the kids Mm -hmm. is because if you don't use the eye, the brain circuits Mm -hmm. for that eye actually are taken over by the eye that's used more. So they Mm -hmm. really discovered and illustrated the use it or lose it principle. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. In more recent years, much of your work has kind of focused on sort of the genetic modulation of visual cortical plasticity. In particular, uh, your lab has found the molecule paired immunoglobulin-like receptor, or PIRB, this co-receptor for MHC class 1 family of molecules. So could you, uh, and and showing that this could repress plasticity, can you briefly tell us a little about the origin of these findings? You know, how you guys kind of went, this is a little bit of a transition yeah, from we're really fast classical here. neural <laughs> development. Right? Yeah. So. Well, you know, it's all, it's funny, it's all the same question. Yeah. And, and I'll never forget, I mean, when I, I would go home, you know, to visit my parents and even right before they died, so yeah. just not that many years ago, you yeah. know, my mother would say, oh, what are you working on these days? And I would tell her, and she says, but you're always working on that. <laughs> and I would say, yeah, mom, because, you know, we want to know how brain circuits change with experience. I mean, it's a meaty question, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, I feel like, you know, you don't want to choose, if you're going to work on a big question for a long time, you don't mm. want to choose some dinky little thing. Yeah. Right. You know, but, I mean, you're always maybe working on little dinky things, but mm-hmm. but you have to have a like big question that's just mm-hmm. um, infinitely mm-hmm. interesting Definitely. that can keep mm-hmm. you busy and, mm-hmm. you know, keep you mm-hmm. occupied. Mm-hmm. So once we and other labs realized mm-hmm. that you have to use uh, your eyes mm-hmm. or, you know, to tune up the brain circuits for vision, mm-hmm. we tried to discover... Uh, how it worked at a molecular level. Mm -hmm. So how would you do that? So we reasoned. So, you know, you're saying genetic. We did genetic experiments. But we actually did experience experiments Mm -hmm. to discover genes. Mm -hmm. Uh So what I mean by that is we thought, well, okay, there are genes that for hardwiring the early connections that form between your eye and your Mm -hmm. visual part of your brain. Mm -hmm. So when your eye connects to your brain, it knows to go to the visual part. It doesn't wander around looking Mm -hmm. for... The connections are not wandering around all over your brain looking. (laughs) There are hardwired genetic instructions Mm -hmm. that tell the growing connections to go to the visual part. Mm -hmm. So we thought, well, maybe there also are experience-dependent genetic instructions. That Mm -hmm. is... 
that there are genes mm -hmm. that are use it or lose it genes that mm -hmm. regulate the rules for learning and circuit tuning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's not, it wasn't a crazy idea because we know people had already found genes that were important for learning and memory. Mm -hmm. right. And that was kind of a big deal. And, you know, we're and talking Aplesia. about like, yeah, yeah, Kreb and. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah. Kreb is a perfect <laughs> example, right? Mm -hmm. And not only did they find Kreb, uh, but they found that. You you know, Kreb had to actually had to be turned on during mm -hmm. learning, mm -hmm. and then there were all these downstream targets. Right. Right. So we thought, gee, maybe we can find genes that are needed during these uh, developmental critical periods. Mm -hmm. So genes that were required for so-called brain plasticity, also yes. required for the kind of earlier developmental plasticity. Right. And in fact, you know, let's go to that word plasticity yeah. just yeah. for a minute, because, yeah. I mean, it's a very confusing word. It's yeah. sort of an awful <laughs> word. I love God. it, but I hate it, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so because, so what? what is it? Well, so... For me, plasticity is the ability of circuits and actually synapses to change with use. Mm -hmm. That's plasticity. Mm -hmm. So there's plasticity that is involved in learning and memory mm -hmm. in the adult. I mean, we mm -hmm. all have, we, we can learn and remember as adults. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then there are these early critical periods of learning mm -hmm. where, if anything, the plasticity, there's even more. There seems to be, mm -hmm. the circuits are, and, you know, kids and mm -hmm. the circuits seem to be capable of changing even more rapidly mm -hmm. with experience. Mm -hmm. And so we thought, well, how could we find genes mm -hmm. in the same way that, you know, maybe they were like Kreb. Maybe mm -hmm. Kreb is one of the genes. So, mm -hmm. in fact, there were some candidate genes, but mm -hmm. we thought, you know, we'd like to find, we'd like to do an unbiased screen mm -hmm. and look for, well, we actually would like the genes to find us mm -hmm. by uh, doing some kind of screen where we manipulate the system, mm -hmm. like vision or no vision, mm -hmm. and then ask which genes get turned on or off. And just look at all the genes you can yeah. possibly look at. and look at all the genes. Yeah. And then uh, we did this many years ago before mm -hmm. it was easy to do this, mm -hmm. these gene ship mm -hmm. experiments and stuff. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, and we so we found a few. Mm -hmm. And actually what we did is we turned off the signaling from the eye to the brain, mm -hmm. plus or minus signaling. Right. Mm -hmm. And then we took out... Uh, in uh, in mice and in cats, we took out mm -hmm. pieces of the brain that were only visual, mm -hmm. so they were only getting the input from the eyes. And mm -hmm. then we we took out, we extracted the RNA, mm -hmm. and we we looked for changes in the expression of whatever genes mm -hmm. we could find. And it was like mm -hmm. needle in the haystack. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what we found was totally unexpected because we found essentially a set of genes mm -hmm. that didn't even belong to us because, mm -hmm. as you pointed out, they're called the major histocompatibility class one mm -hmm. genes. Mm -hmm. Can you say that? <laughs> so we call them MHC1. Right. Yeah. And the reason it was so surprising is that these are famous genes that are needed in the immune system uh -huh. for the T-cell receptor to work, right. for adaptive immunity, for mm -hmm. self, non-self, for tissue, like mm -hmm. if you do transplantation. This mm -hmm. is, you know, you have to have the right MHC class 1 molecules. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you reject, let's say, in a, in a heart transplant. You'll have an autoimmune. Uh, exactly. Your immune system will attack yourself. Mm -hmm. right. right. So they weren't supposed to be in the healthy brain. Yeah. So we've, we, we ran why weren't Why weren't they supposed to be in the healthy brain. So there's just this dogma out yeah, there? Yeah, there's this just... huge dogma out mm -hmm. there. And even today, if you look in textbooks, yeah. it's still there. Still says that. <laughs> still there. They're still all learning that. Right, right. You're right. You know, yeah. yeah. Right. Right. So as you point out, it's, it, it is, the brain is immune privileged, mm -hmm. but one of the main ideas there mm -hmm. is that uh, neurons do not 
have these MHC class 1 molecules Mm -hmm. when they're healthy, and therefore Mm -hmm. uh, the immune cells, you know, aren't really kind of checking out the nerve cells. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But what we discovered is that not only do the nerve cells have these MHC class 1 proteins, Mm -hmm. but most of them are concentrated at the synapses, Mm -hmm. and they're regulated by using your brain, Mm -hmm. so by vision. And when you knock them out, you get more Mm -hmm. ocular dominance plasticity than normal. So what do I mean by that? Mm -hmm. So remember we talked about these ocular dominance columns. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if one eye is open and the other eye is closed, the open eye gets more than its fair share. Mm -hmm. So in these knockout mice Mm -hmm. where they don't have MHC class Mm 1, They get even more than their fair share. (laughs) So they really get everything. Mm -hmm. So it's the winner take all. It's amazing. So there was a break. The idea is that there must have been a break on plasticity. Mm -hmm. And somehow when we knocked out these molecules, we took the break off. Mm -hmm. And then we thought, well, how do these proteins? Anyhow, we thought, nobody's (laughs) going to believe this. We're going to have to find, (laughs) we're going to have to explain a little more how how they work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we thought, well, maybe they do work like in the immune system. Uh Uh-huh. And the way they work in the immune system is that they talk to the T-cell receptor. Mm -hmm. So the MHC class 1 proteins Mm -hmm. are recognized by the T-cell receptor, Mm -hmm. and then they're signaling, and then Mm -hmm. things happen in the immune system. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So we started to look for immune receptors Mm -hmm. in neurons. So this was, like, even worse against the dog. (laughs) They weren't supposed to be there. And then we actually found quite a number. We found at least three. Uh One really good one Mm -hmm. that was very clearly there and Mm -hmm. expressed Mm -hmm. is called called paired immunoglobulin-like B, mm-hmm. another mouthful, yeah, um, peer, and we call it PIR, P-I-R, uh-huh. PIR B, as in boy, okay. or as in best, or whatever. <laughs> and it is, and then we showed, and it is an MHC class 1 receptor, mm-hmm. and the cool thing is, if mice don't have that receptor, mm-hmm. just like the mice that don't have the MHC mm-hmm. class 1, we, we knocked out two specific ones. Mm-hmm. They also have more mm-hmm. plasticity mm-hmm. in their brains. And so was it generally surprising for you to that? So it makes sense to me that you might have something to promote plasticity, but is a break just as intuitive to you? Or? No, I wasn't. And we, we actually, yeah. we were really slow to understand what we'd just done. <laughs> actually, you know, like now you look back and you think, yeah. duh, you know, well, there, yeah. there, there, are, there are repressors and, yeah. you know, and there are positive regulators and negative <laughs> regulators, you know. Mm-hmm. But prior to our discovery, all of the plasticity regulating genes and mm-hmm. molecules that had been found like CREB mm-hmm. or BDNF mm-hmm. or you know other neurotrophin receptors or mm-hmm. were all positive regulators mm-hmm. in the sense that if you knock them out so the mm-hmm. mouse doesn't have them mm-hmm. then there's less or no plasticity right. and the mice are dumb yeah and what we had found was were mice with more plasticity yeah. and by the way on simple mouse learning tests which mm-hmm. are pretty pretty pitiful. Um, <laughs> the mice are smarter. I see. And now, of course, qu- uh, quite a number of other candidate molecules mm-hmm. have been found that right. are also negative right. regulators. So they're like sure. breaks. Sure. And what happens, uh, so as a negative regulating system, uh, what happens when something goes wrong with this mechanism? Let me give you two answers to that question. So mm-hmm. when I first discovered with two great postdocs in mm-hmm. the lab, mm-hmm. and they were both really great cell biologists, by mm-hmm. the way, I don't mm-hmm. think we would have done this otherwise. Mm-hmm. Right. When we first found these MHC class 1 molecules, Mm -hmm. you know, I was going, what? (laughs) And they were both going, oh, that's really cool. (laughs) So when we discovered these molecules, I went to the 
PubMed, and uh-huh. I typed in MHC. I was like, what disease are we studying? Right. Right. MHC class 1, Parkinson's, MHC uh-huh. class 1, autism, MHC right. class 1, schizophrenia. Yeah. Okay. And it seemed that there was a study that suggested that a, a small family uh-huh. of Han Chinese oh, um, had a high incidence of schizophrenia. Uh-huh. Uh, connected to one of the MHC class one alleles, but hmm. do you do you think that these patients, you know, they might have uh, psychi- psychiatric disorders? But do you think many of them are just not known because many of them also suffer from immune disorders? Hmm. Yes. Yeah, so the, it's a very well. They could be gain or loss of function. So right. you know, and then it depends on how you would look. And that's what's really interesting to me yeah. too. We still don't know. But yeah. anyhow, that and then like a, I was really excited. I said, oh, yeah. we're studying schizophrenia. <laughs> I went back, you know, a few months later, yeah. and then there was another paper. You know, this yeah. is like an. Like the po- the patient population was yeah. like ten, yeah. <laughs> and then I went back a month later, and uh, and then there was a paper saying no correlation between you know <laughs> schizophrenia. Oh, and, uh, okay, okay. So in two thousand and nine, three back to back papers in Nature Genetics, uh-huh. all. Uh, the highest, most highest uh, imputed mm-hmm. locus mm-hmm. in big studies. So now they yeah. had like mm, 3,000 patients. Mm-hmm. And by the way, now they have like, you know, 30,000 patients. Right. Yeah. Uh, MHC class 1 locus, mm-hmm. the high, most highly correlated. And SNPs, there are several SNPs at the, that locus. Mm-hmm. And uh, just this last year, another huge study came out, mm-hmm. same thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know... What what I find crazy is what we're studying in terms of these changes in plasticity. Mm-hmm. And by the way, mm-hmm. what those are at the cellular level, we now know, mm-hmm. are changes in uh, the pruning away of synapses that okay. uh, normally occur- occurs during developmental critical periods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So some synapses are pruned away. So this is use it or lose it in actions. Right. Mm-hmm. If you use it, you keep it. Mm-hmm. If you... Don't use it. Mm-hmm. You prune it away. Mm-hmm. You lose it. Mm-hmm. Right. And what we realized is these MHC class one genes and the peer B receptor are all about the pruning process, mm-hmm. which is really exciting to us. We still yeah. now we're that's what we're working on. We're trying to figure out how does that work. Yeah. But the point is, even now the geneticists, mm-hmm. you know, kind of wave their hands yeah. in these studies. And they say, well. You know, MHC class one. Well, there is a connection between you know immune system and and the brain, and it must be the immune system that's going crazy and uh-huh. and having an effect on the brain, and <laughs> right. that's doing something in right. schizophrenia. Right. And they're like waving their hands, and we're sitting here in my yeah. lab and a few <laughs> other labs now, yeah. and we have a mechanism yeah. right. that would explain. Uh-huh. How it works. So it sounds and like they're failing to make the distinction that yes, it's the same molecule, but it's playing a totally. It's still role. their molecule. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's it. It's still exactly. Unit Whereas I, I'm happy to share, you know. <laughs> but so yeah. we're very, very excited about yeah. about that. Now, yeah. when we realized that we were studying. Uh, mechanisms that mm-hmm. regulate synapse stability and mm-hmm. pruning. Mm-hmm. We realize the other major disease mm-hmm. where this is so terrible mm-hmm. is an Alzheimer's disease where mm-hmm. there's too much synapse pruning, mm-hmm. uh, thought to be driven by beta, the bad, this, the plaques and tangles, mm-hmm. which are made up of uh, insoluble deposits of beta amyloid. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So we actually just thought maybe our molecules are involved somehow, and mm-hmm. let's go do a uh, a genetic experiment in mice mm-hmm. and see whether if you knock out pure B, mm-hmm. there's no pruning. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. in the mice. Mm-hmm. So if you take mice that have Alzheimer's disease, mm-hmm. and they do, because mm-hmm. you can give them human genes mm-hmm. that put you at very high risk for very early onset Alzheimer's. Right. Mm-hmm. And sadly, the mice, too, actually develop memory loss mm-hmm. and these bad beta amyloid plaques and tangles Mm -hmm. as they get older, like nine months Mm -hmm. to a year and a half. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we introduced our mice Mm -hmm. that don't have the pure B receptor Mm -hmm. with the Alzheimer mice. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, we discovered that mice that don't have the pure B receptor Mm -hmm. are immune to the effects of the bad beta amyloid, and they don't have memory loss. At nine months of age, they don't have changes in synaptic plasticity that happen in mm-hmm. the Alzheimer mice. Mm-hmm. And the discovery, in, in fact, we know that one of the reasons is that the bad beta amyloid mm-hmm. actually hijacks the pure B receptor away from its favorite MHC class 1 mm. proteins. I see. And drives this pruning process too hard. Okay, so now you can think about there's pruning going on. Mm -hmm. A lot is happening during development. Mm -hmm. Then the circuits get stable, Mm -hmm. but there's still a little pruning going on. Mm -hmm. And then, terribly, with Alzheimer's, Mm -hmm. the pruning goes on like mad. Mm -hmm. But at that time, there's not enough plasticity, maybe, to replace the synapses, right? Mm -hmm. So they Mm -hmm. go away, and that's where your memories are stored. Mm -hmm. I see. Interesting. And and I guess maybe some of the audience members might wonder, is this something that, and I'm always afraid of this a little bit, maybe because of science training, something where people have targeted PRB or these, these molecules for other reasons that they could be using Alzheimer's, or have people actually done something similar? No, I mean, it would be great, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah. So actually, again, mm-hmm. naturally, <laughs> we this discovery goes against the Mm -hmm. dogma Mm -hmm. in the Alzheimer's field. Mm -hmm. But I actually think it's really exciting because Mm -hmm. it it opens up a whole new area of potential therapeutics, as you Mm -hmm. point out. Mm -hmm. So the dogma in the Alzheimer's field Mm -hmm. is that the bad beta amyloid, when it accumulates over time Mm -hmm. and becomes these plaques and tangles, Mm -hmm. which are the way the clinical diagnosis depends on seeing these plaques and tangles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at that point, it's really late in the yeah, disease. Right. And, and, you know, the patient has already come in. They've already yeah. suffered serious cognitive loss. Right. Mm-hmm. Then you see these plaques and tangles. And if you, you know, if you read, like, I went to Alzheimer's.org uh, mm-hmm. uh, just the other day to mm-hmm. read, you know, did do they have any new ideas? Right. And what they really, literally, it's like these plaques and tangles gum up nerve cells insides so that they cannot function and they die. Mm. Right. Okay. Well, that's yeah. very scientific. Right. But I mean, that is. I mean, the the, the current idea is it's these the the it's mm-hmm. causing the plaques and tangles are causing the disease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What. What we discovered mm-hmm. is that far before yeah. the plaques and tangles get insoluble, mm-hmm. there's still this beta amyloid is being made at high levels. Mm-hmm. And it's already driving the loss of synapses, which actually mm-hmm. makes a lot more sense. I mean, yeah. you know, it seems like that would, would explain the cell death. Right. Because if the beta amyloid mm-hmm. is causing pruning, then the poor neurons can't be in the circuits anymore and they right. would die. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> What it says is that a mechanism for Alzheimer's disease Mm -hmm. is a Mm receptor-based mechanism, Mm -hmm. which means if you target the receptor, you might prevent Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Mm -hmm. And 
it happens, and Alzheimer's then is a disease of the synapse first, mm-hmm. and then is a disease of the, the neuron second. Mm-hmm. And it means if you go in and treat earlier, mm-hmm. maybe even some of the drugs that have been currently made and have failed in mm-hmm. clinical trials mm-hmm. might work. Mm-hmm. And indeed, there are a number now of companies, mm-hmm. well, all the trials uh, started with end-stage Alzheimer's disease patients. Mm-hmm. Now, they didn't work, but mm-hmm. some of them uh, turned out to be safe. Mm-hmm. So there's at least one trial, mm-hmm. uh, Roche Genentech, where mm-hmm. they've gone in way earlier, mm-hmm. and they're studying families in Colombia, South America, mm-hmm. where they have very early onset Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. So they're hoping that by going in mm-hmm. really early, I mean, mm-hmm. in, the for- in their 40s, mm-hmm. they're not right. waiting for them to, mm-hmm. maybe they will be protected. Mm-hmm. And now several other labs <clears throat> also have discovered beta amyloid Mm-hmm. receptors mm-hmm. that are at the synapse that are being hijacked. Mm-hmm. So there may be a number of really important synapse receptors mm-hmm. that are getting stolen away by the beta amyloid mm-hmm. and are driving the synapse to go away. Mm-hmm. And if that's true, it means we have a whole new array of potential therapeutics, right. which would actually be really cool. Yeah, this, this is super interesting because you started with this such early development question. <laughs> it's really just leading you back around to the end, right. you know, going around in the cycle a bit. I did have a basic question, though, about, well, I have two. The first one is more like about this family of MHC molecules. And I'm not an immunologist, so I don't know for sure, but this is a very diverse set of molecules, is my understanding. And is that diversity at least used and in part by the brain? Is the brain really using these molecules for a certain reason? Yeah, we or is don't it really know. Yeah. So, so, the, the, so, you know, in the human genome or in the mouse genome, there are easily 50 different genes mm-hmm. for MHC class 1. And, and even the immunologists will admit they don't know what most of them are doing because <laughs> they know what they, be, they know what they have these, they call some of them classical yeah. and others non-classical. I see. And the classical MHC class 1 molecules, they know a lot about yeah. because those are the ones that are important mm-hmm. for the T-cell function mm-hmm. right. and for adaptive immunity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a, maybe, you know, I don't know, five or six of them. Mm-hmm. But the, the others, <clears throat> are they're highly related, yeah. but they're not uh, as generally uh, present mm-hmm. all over on all your cells. Mm-hmm. And some of them have very highly localized tissue distribution. So that's the first thing. So we looked to start with, the ones we found were classical. Uh-huh. And so we started studying the classical ones. And that was also partly because the immunologists had made some mice that we yeah. could use to study yeah. genetically engineered mice so we could start somewhere, yeah. right? Right. And we don't even know how many are expressed in the brain. We yeah. see, we can find both the classical ones and some non-classical ones. You know, it's, but it's pitiful. I mean, I think we've, yeah. we've, we know there may be five or six total that uh-huh. we've studied yeah. mm-hmm. out of 50, and are oh, the wow. other ones there? <laughs> so your question is a yeah. great, great question. I mean, I think it's just really the beginning of trying yeah. to understand how this works. Lots more work to do. And like, why would there be so many? Why yeah. do you need so many? Right, right. Pruning is pruning. So what, you know, you <laughs> yeah. think. Yeah. So we don't know. Interesting. And the second question, I had was just more generally about science. So looking at this kind of genetic molecular basis for these phenomena that you've been studying basically since you started as an undergrad in, with Hubel and Wiesel, um, like, you, did, did you get to, do you feel like you had been thinking about this question for a long time and then you just had to wait until the tools were ready or were you just, you know, you were just kind of, when the tools came about, you came, the questions <laughs> came about? This is a chicken and egg question. Every experiment, <clears throat> every experiment result generates the next question. Mm-hmm. Then you look around mm-hmm. And I think, you know, for me, I've always tried to use the tools that were available at the time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that was really hard because, mm-hmm. for example, yeah. uh, the reason we 
discovered these MHC class 1 proteins is mm-hmm. we we did this screen where we blocked activity coming from the eyes to the brain. Mm-hmm. And then we did, it was an unbiased screen because we weren't looking for any specific gene. Right. Mm-hmm. We just were looking for anything that got turned on or off, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. essentially by using your visual system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the reason we did this experiment at that mm-hmm. time is actually I was uh, really close friends with Richard Scheller, who's mm-hmm. here at yeah. Stanford, and right. Corey Goodman, who right. was here at Stanford. Mm-hmm. Corey mm-hmm. was uh, developing Drosophila mm-hmm. as, a, you know, as an awesome genetic right. model. <laughs> And they were doing all these screens, you know, and mm-hmm. I thought, oh, we want to do screens too. And, <laughs> but, but in order to analyze the uh, RNAs, mm-hmm. the gene chips weren't, they were, they had just been, uh, the first right. ones had just been made. Yeah. So we were actually using an older technique, yeah. a, a PCR-based technique to oh, look wow. for changes in gene expression. So really, I mean, in many ways, we were pushing the envelope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were a little bit ahead. Yeah. And, and that... That can happen. I mean, that uh-huh. has happened a few times to me like that. Where, yeah. um, but we found a few, and yeah. then we could follow them because the, yeah. there was the technology that was available. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe, Eddie, do you want to follow up with maybe some of, so we've talked a lot about your science, yeah, some non-science, because yeah. we know you're a skier, and so there's a lot of other things you do too, though. Right, right. So apart from all the amazing science you do, you're seen by many as a role model for female scientists, uh, having been the first woman to get a PhD in neurobiology from Harvard, first female chair of neurobiology at Harvard, the first woman to be granted tenure in basic science at Stanford, and the first woman to be hired at Stanford School of Medicine. That's a lot of firsts. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, a lot let me of clarify. There. Let me clarify. So there's, okay, I'm, I definitely was the first woman to get a PhD from Harvard Medical, from the mm-hmm. neurobiology department, mm-hmm. and also first woman chair mm-hmm. of that department, <laughs> which I think is really funny because, mm-hmm. right, I mean, I went there, mm-hmm. and then I went back to mm-hmm. be the chair right. of the very people who had trained me, <laughs> and so I think it's a great lesson. <laughs> be nice to your students. You never know what's going to happen. But so um, it was interesting. So uh, I was hired at Stanford in 1978. Mm -hmm. And at that time, uh, there were really no women in the basic science line. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know, there may not have, I don't even know if there were any women who were in leadership or tenure track positions in the clinical lines at the medical school. I mean, there were really no women. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. And that year that I was hired. It turned out they hired me. Uh-huh. They hired Helen Blau. Uh-huh. <clears throat> Who's still here. Right? Who's still here, yeah. yeah. And they hired Ann Arvin, okay. who mm. is a microbiologist, and now she is our vice provost for mm-hmm. research. Yeah, yeah. They hired the three of us uh-huh. that year. Yeah. And we were told later that it was kind of like our risk. They were, they were, you know, <laughs> like we were the first, we didn't know. I mean, yeah. we didn't right. know. We didn't realize until we got here yeah. that there were no other women, right? Yeah. And then we immediately found each other and became yeah. good friends. Yeah. But, but it was amazing. So yeah. they were actually kind of experimenting. And I found yeah. out the same thing happened in grad school. So it turned yeah. out, David Hubel told me later, many yeah. years later, yeah. they had a huge discussion yeah. about whether they should admit me to grad school because yeah. they were worried I would get married and quit. Despite all the work you'd already done, it seems like. (laughs) You know, I mean, you really have to remember the the time and the stereotypes. Sure. I'm glad everybody took a big risk. (laughs) And and look at what happened to all three of us, right? Right. So, and then, 
Yes, and I was then. I was first th- to be promoted mm-hmm. uh, on the basic science line. Thank so. you. <laughs> do, do you think things have changed at all, or is it pretty well? Much? I think obviously they've changed. Yes, I think right. they've changed a lot. Okay. You know, and we yeah. take. But I, I actually feel. I feel like there's so much more that needs uh-huh. to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For instance, you know, some of the biggest uh, issues for both men and women going mm-hmm. into science, yeah. especially women, is the biological clock. Mm-hmm. And when you look. Uh, for grad students and postdocs mm-hmm. um, at the lack of uh, really serious uh, support mm-hmm. for starting a family when you really mm-hmm. right. should start a family. Right. Mm-hmm. We still have not solved that problem. Right, right. And, you know, it's a little better, you know, mm-hmm. at least sometimes, you know, you can find daycare. Mm-hmm. And yeah. actually one of the most important things I did when I was recruiting yeah. new faculty to Harvard, yeah. to the Department of Neurobiology, yeah. was to uh, work on on daycare solutions. Because <laughs> daycare is crazy <laughs> expensive. Like these postdocs that yeah. I talk to, it's, it's hard. It's tough. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And, you know, there's never a good time to have... A family, yeah. and it just gets harder as you get older. Yeah. And one reason I don't have any kids is mm-hmm. I waited too long. I thought, yeah. oh, well, I'll wait till I, I get <laughs> tenure. You know? And that was too late. I couldn't yeah. have kids. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm really aware of this as an issue that is yeah. not solved yeah. and needs more work. Yeah. And apart from all these things, you've also taken up many leadership positions, including director of BioX here at Stanford, on top of being chair of neurobiology over at Harvard, um, and even president of the Society for Neuroscience. So have you been able to juggle you know, all these very in- amazing leadership roles with being the, uh, a PI and, you know... With difficulty. <laughs> well, I mean, really, for I think each of these jobs, it's sort of like two full-time jobs. Mm-hmm. It really is. And basically, you know, you do have to give stuff up. I mean, I think it, it's, it's, it honestly has had a toll mm-hmm. on, on my, I mean, I love, you know, my physical mm-hmm. life of, mm-hmm. you know, hi- we used to go hiking and skiing in the mountains and <laughs> yeah. everything, you know, yeah. and there's just no time for that. And I, yeah. so I do think, you know, you can't, there are, you have to make certain choices mm-hmm. and decisions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's been so energizing. That's mm-hmm. the thing. And, you know, you somebody once said to me, it really made me mad. Somebody mm-hmm. said, oh, why would you ever do that, you know, <laughs> like, to be chair of a department? Yeah. Yeah. And that is a selfish question yeah. because I think for me, every time I have participated in some kind of leadership role, mm-hmm. It's first, it's because it's energizing. I like doing it, but mm-hmm. also I just feel so grateful mm-hmm. for. I mean, I can't believe I am here talking <laughs> to you guys. Really. It's unbelievable. Yeah. People made things possible for me. Mm-hmm. Each one of these roles is a way to make things possible mm-hmm. for you, for the mm-hmm. next generation. It's really important. Mm-hmm. No matter how much you think your science is the best, mm-hmm. forget it. You know, in 20 years, yeah. nobody's going to know. Right. But they're going to stand on your shoulders. Yeah. And that's what science is all about. It mm-hmm. is a collective process. And anybody who thinks it's just them, mm-hmm. watch out for them. <laughs> it's really a collective process. Mm-hmm. And we all get there together. Mm-hmm. And I see that these service positions Positions, mm-hmm. even though they take time, are mm-hmm. really important. Mm-hmm. And if I can do them, you know, i actually been quite careful, though. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, I, I am not a micromanager. Mm-hmm. I delegate, and I make sure I have a great team. Mm-hmm. And it's always been true. And if I don't have a great team, mm-hmm. I make a great team. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> that's something I've learned. And so with that said, it sounds like you don't have a lot of spare time. Do you do anything for fun when you can, <laughs> when you can? It's really, it's really pitiful right now. <laughs> well, I do yoga every morning. Oh, that's, well, that's already ahead of me. That's yeah, for sure. Definitely. I've been running weeks. <laughs> 
you know, really, I, I still love going to the opera mm-hmm. and the, uh, mm-hmm. I like, you know, dance. And mm-hmm. <clears throat> the being the new Bing Auditorium mm-hmm. here has been fantastic. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I've been going to things there, which yeah. is really nice. Yeah. So I like to do things like that. I'd love to get back in the mountains, yeah. but I just haven't had time. Yeah. And my yeah. I have two bad knees right now. <laughs> <laughs> you can so. just sit in the snow. <laughs> too many moguls. Yeah, no, I can't do I know. Good idea. All right, yeah. with that, I, I feel like we're wearing your voice out a little yeah. bit. So maybe we better stop here. Sure. Thank you all for uh, listening to us today. And uh, thank you for speaking with us today. It's an honor. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you all for listening. Brains and Bourbon is a production of Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. This episode was brought to you by Erica Senior, Eddie Alberon, Adi Yi, and myself, Viet Nguyen. You can find all past episodes of Brains and Bourbon, as well as our podcast, NeuroTalk, and read articles about everything neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org.